Good afternoon. My name is Emma, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the DoorDash fourth quarter 2022 earnings conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, again, press the star one. We ask today that you limit yourself to one question and one follow-up. Thank you. Andy Hargraves, you may begin your conference. Thank you, Emma. Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us for our fourth quarter and full year 2022 earnings call. I'm very pleased today to be joined by co-founder, chair, and CEO, Tony Hsu, CFO and incoming president and COO, Prabir Darkar, and VP of Finance and Strategy, and our incoming CFO, Ravi Inokanda. We'll be making forward-looking statements during today's call, including our expectations for our business, financial position, operating performance, our market, guidance, strategies, our investment approach, and the consumer spending environment. Forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from those described. Many of these uncertainties are described in our SEC filings, including Form 10-Ks and 10-Qs. You should not rely on our forward-looking statements as predictions of future events. We disclaim any obligation to update any forward-looking statements except as required by law. During this call, we will discuss certain non-GAAP financial measures, information regarding our non-GAAP financial measures, including a reconciliation of such non-GAAP measures to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measures, may be found in our letter to shareholders, which is available on our IR website. These non-GAAP measures should be considered in addition to our GAAP results and are not intended to be a substitute for our GAAP results. Finally, this call is being audio webcast on our IR website, and an audio replay of the call will be available on our website shortly after the call ends. With that, I will pass it to Tony for some brief remarks, and then we'll go into questions. Tony. Thanks, Andy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Typically, we just dive right into Q&A, but for today's call, I wanted to say a few words at the top about Christopher, Prabir, and Ravi. I'm sure many of you have seen the news that we're naming Prabir president and chief operating officer and Ravi as CFO as Christopher retires from operating roles and day-to-day management. In his seven-plus years here, Christopher, or CP as we call him internally, has helped to shape our business and our culture. He infused an operator mindset across the company and coached an entire generation of our leaders. On a personal level, I will miss him. I've learned so much from him and consider myself lucky to count him as a business partner and friend. Today's news is a chance to celebrate CP's 33 incredible years as an operator and what he has helped us build. It also shows the strength of our systems and the amazing team we have built at DoorDash. Prabir and Ravi have been with us for more than four years and have mastered every aspect of our business. Both are without equal in this space, and I'm excited for what they'll achieve and what we'll continue building together. Over our near 10-year history, DoorDash has been fortunate to have had a remarkably stable and high-quality leadership team. Nonetheless, everyone in our team has a succession plan. We knew that CP wouldn't always be here, and we've been ready for this possibility for some time. And we're always developing our bench of talent as well as our systems and processes so that the right people can step up when ready. We operate in a very complicated and dynamic space and the understanding of nuance and the ability to translate this intuition into pragmatic judgment 
takes time. We're lucky that we have two people we've been grooming for a while and a group of operators behind them to continue executing with excellence without skipping a beat. Prabir and Robbie are also excellent stewards of our unique culture. Again, I want to thank CP for everything he's done and congratulate both Prabir and Robbie. I'm super excited for what's ahead because as CP likes to say, we're just getting started. With that, I'll turn it back over to Andy and let's get started with your questions. Emma, we can go to questions now. Take the first question, please. Thank you. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad, and please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up. Your first question comes from the line of Deepak Mathavanan with Wolf Research. Your line is now open. Great. Um, thanks for taking the questions. So uh, a couple questions. First, Tony, the guidance paragraph in your uh, press release noted ongoing significant investments reflected in the outlook. Can you update us on what the largest areas of incremental investments planned for 2023 are? Which businesses sort of getting additional capital and are showing promising you know, growth and uh, scaling uh, potential? And then uh, second one for Probeer, congrats on the new roles. Um, there's, there's definitely some uncertainties around, you know, potential regulation in markets like New York City. I know the proposal is delayed until sort of the end of the month, but how are you thinking about the impact on your business currently and kind of, you know, what have you factored into the preliminary 2023 outlook? Thank you so much. Hey, Deepak, um, I'll take a stab at, uh, you know, both of those questions and, you know, feel free uh, others to chime in. Um, you know, I think your first question was really just around, you know, how we were thinking about our capital allocation. You know, to start, I, I think it's important to um, just level set on our philosophy for investing, which has stayed the same ever since we've been a public company and really has been the same since day one um, in building DoorDash, which is our goal is to maximize long-term profit dollars. And so that both has a scale component um, to it, as well as a unit economics component to it. And to me, both of them are very important. And it's most important to get the sequencing right so that we are allocating capital in the most efficient ways. So when you look at, you know, this allocation um, uh, for whether it's 23 or in the years to come, uh, a lot of the investment is going towards in building our categories beyond restaurants, uh, both in the United States as well as globally, as well as our operations outside of the U.S. as we're now live in 26 countries. I mean, I, I think it's been remarkable the progress that we've seen so far in both um, the share gains as well as just the level of product market fit that we've achieved in both of these both of these dimensions. You know, with new categories, we're now the largest platform with the most amount of um, partners outside of restaurants in North America. Um, we've gained share in the majority of our international markets. And, you know, our Volt business overseas in Europe um, is growing much faster than peers. And so we're seeing a lot of progress there, and we're doubling on that momentum. At the same time, we're very observant about our unit economics. And a lot of that, um, you know, progression is reflected in, you know, some of the guidance that we shared, you know, for 23, but also in what we expect to see on a go-forward basis as we continue to improve the efficiency of our operations in addition to the quality of our product level. 
Anything um, and, and, anyone else wants to add on this first, first yeah, question? Yeah, Tony, it's probably maybe I'll, I'll add a little bit and then Ravi can take um, the New York City question. Deepak, I mean, uh, Tony alluded to, uh, you know, the strategy to continue investing behind building out a new categories as well as international. And, you know, we've put up significant proof points that are quite encouraging in terms of our progress uh, in building scale. So just a couple of data points. Last quarter, we had said our U.S. convenience and grocery business, this is in Q3, you know, geo, had GOV growth of over 80%. That business grew 60% year on year in Q4. So still continues to grow at meaningfully higher growth rates compared to the restaurants. Our, our third party US grocery business grew 100% year on year, uh, both in Q3 and Q4. And then Volt, um, as we alluded to on a shareholder letter, uh, on a constant currency basis has grown 50% year on year, which is again significantly faster than its, its European peers. And so I, I take these as, as positive proof points in terms of not just product market fit, but our ability to drive scale uh, on the platform. In addition, we've got proof points of, of continued improvements in unit economics. So we talked about a third party convenience business. In fact, earlier in 2022, we said it would get to break even on a variable profit basis in 2022. In Q4, we, we did exactly what we said we were going to do. We got to variable profit break even. A third party grocery business continues to improve its margins. So, you know, to be clear, we have a long way to go, but as we continue to improve the products and the product experience, we believe we can continue to drive outsized growth in all of these areas that we're investing behind and continued margin improvement. Ravi, do you want to take the, the New York City question? Yeah, thanks, Prabir. Thanks, Deepak, for the question. On the New York City impact, we've been thinking about this for a while now. The impact uh, from a cost perspective is included in our EBITDA guidance going forward. We actually have a number of levers from an operational perspective that we can put in place, including passing on any fees to our audiences to ensure that we can meet our profitability expectations. Got it. Thank you so much for the answers. Really appreciate it. Your next question comes from the line of Brian Nowak with Morgan Stanley. Your line is now open. Thanks for taking my questions. It'd be two. The first one on the the Dash Pass member number, you know, another uh, another strong quarter period of growth. Can you just talk a little bit about to the the biggest drivers of that Dash Pass adoption growth and any update on spend per member across the the Dash Passers? And the second one is to sort of look at the 2023 guidance. Can you just sort of give us a little, any breakdown at all, how we think about the the GOV and the EBITDA from the core U.S. restaurant business as opposed to all the emerging, faster-growing businesses in the in the in each, in each of those two pieces? Thanks. Yeah, maybe I'll start on the, the Dash Pass question, uh, Brian, and then and, uh, um, Ravi can chime in on the 23 guidance question in terms of what's driving uh, the growth there. Really, look, the Dash Pass uh, uh, growth has been remarkably consistent over the course of this past year. We exited 21 with 10 million subscribers. We're ex exiting this year with 15 million. And that, and the pace of that growth has been consistent despite a variety of competitor offerings from both of our competitors in the space. And, and what that goes to is just evidence uh, to me, at least, that the combination of selection, price, and quality that we are, we offer through our program is resonating with with customers. In terms of what's driving the growth, it's not been partnership driven as, as some of our competitors might be. Uh, um, as that's a competitive strategy that others are using. The majority of our growth, at least as far as our Dash Pass program goes, um, is from 
our own channels as well as through traditional performance marketing channels. So it's, these are, it's not partnership driven. It's, it, these are organic channels that ultimately drive the growth that we've seen in the product. Second, the pace continues um, uh, pretty consistently. And so there's a lot of room to grow. If you think about the size of the Dashpass program, it's 15 million subs. It's still a far cry from other programs, whether it's you know the number of Netflix members or Prime subscribers, there's a lot of room for us to continue growing and, and we're happy with the pace of growth historically and we're not seeing any signs of that slowing down. Thanks, Vivir. Uh, let me take the question on the guide. Um, we are not breaking out any specifics, but our U.S. restaurant business is the largest business and it's going to be the major driver, both on the top line as well as the bottom line. As we talked about in the shareholder letter, we do expect to increase margins, both from our U.S. restaurants, as well as all of our investment areas going into 2023. Great. Thank you both. Your next question comes from the line of Eric Sheridan with Goldman Sachs. Your line is now open. Thanks so much for taking the question. Maybe if I could focus on Walt. Um, can you talk a little bit in terms of multi-part on elements of the subscription base of Walt and what you see as an opportunity set there, as well as some of the competitive dynamic and how you've stayed in investment mode in Walt and what's that meant for a mixture of growth and uh, possibly taking market share in some of those key markets for Walt? Thanks so much. Hey, Eric, it's Tony. Yeah, I'll, I'll get started and others can chime in. Um, you know, I, I think the thesis for Volt has remained remarkably consistent. Um, you know, when we met the team, you know, two years ago, um, you know, we were first struck by how similar we were as operators and how we thought about just building businesses. But at the same time, what we were really impressed by from a business perspective was just the superior level of retention and order frequency it had achieved with its product relative to peers. And I think that's, you know, that remains to be, um, you know, what we've seen today in the data as we've now, you know, been partners for a couple of years now where you just see the constant progression um, of its outperformance um, on a relative basis. And it's just coming from those cohorts getting larger that retain at higher levels who order and engage more often. That effectively is a geometric sequence of growth that um, is what you're seeing, you know, on a relative basis. It actually isn't, you know, that much yet attributed to, you know, its subscription products um, or anything else, which actually, you know, lends to uh, its future potential. I mean, there, there's there's a couple of things that we're pretty excited about. One is just how underpenetrated it is in most of its geographies, in even its, you know, most mature established markets. Um, Volt actually serves a fraction of the actual population. And second to, you know, the premise of the question, there are quite a lot of products that Volt hasn't yet introduced. And in most of these markets, you know, I, I think there also doesn't really exist that much e-commerce in terms of its behavior relative to some of, um, you know, what you see here in the United States. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity across a variety of vectors for growth. And just on the competitive dynamic question, I mean, you asked the question of market share. You know, third-party data, particularly in, in some of the countries where Volt operates, isn't clean. But if you just simply look at their their constant currency growth rate of 50%, and you compare it to, you know, the, the European peers or, or 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 European divisions of more global peers, uh, the, you know, the Volt business is growing significantly faster. So, you know, to me, that suggests market share gains, despite the fact that we don't have precise third-party data to back that up.
Your next question comes from the line of Lloyd Walmsley with UBS. Your line is now open. Uh, thanks. Uh, kind of try to try to bundle a few into one. Um, you've historically talked about, you know, your guidance philosophy being, you know, you give a range. You're not really targeting to like beat the high end or hit the high end. It's more a function of are there things to invest in that look compelling, uh, and if you find things to invest, right, you you don't end up hitting hitting the high end. Is that still the way that that you guys think about guidance philosophy, and how do we think about you know the growth opportunities you see perhaps in the 23 versus prior years, especially as you kind of get more comfortable with Walt and a few in a few markets. Thanks. Hey, Lloyd. I mean, on the question of guidance philosophy, the way we guide and the way we run the business, I mean, none of that's changed, right? And we've said historically, you know, the way we run the business is try to maximize scale and put as much on the top line as possible. The the And we're investing in that regard in order to maximize scale. Now, as far as the EBITDA guidance goes, the guidance range is really meant to create a sense of discipline so that we ensure we can try to fall within the range. Now, precisely where we fall depends on the exact investment opportunities available um, uh, and their returns versus our, our expectations. And so to the extent, as you pointed out, you know, investments are available uh, and we like the returns relative to our payback thresholds, we will invest. In recent times, what we've seen, seen is we've outperformed on the top line where there's been strength in consumer metrics, you've, you've seen our MAU metrics, you've seen our dash pass numbers that has contributed to incremental top line that has helped us um, get closer to the top end of the EBITDA range despite a healthy level of investment. So, you know, that's just to clarify where we've landed in the range, but the objective, uh, A, you know, the philosophy has not changed in terms of how we manage the business and invest for growth. And then B, uh, our objective is not to try to beat the EBITDA range, but to try to land within it. Your next question comes from the line of Michael McGovern with Bank of America. Your line is now open. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for taking my question. I recall back earlier in 2022, you gave a, a number that you had 80,000 net new restaurants and merchants, I think, in Q2. And I was curious how that's tracking at this point as we get into a more potentially recessionary environment. And do you have kind of an underlying assumption for how that will track in 2023? I guess how important is it to continue to drive new restaurant and merchant signups? Thank you. Yeah. Hey, Michael. Um, so we've continued to see, you know, growth in the selection on the platform. And that's true both for restaurants and that's also true for non-restaurants. Actually, you know, it's, I would say there's kind of a confluence of two external factors um, and in addition to just, I think, the team's great execution, which is, one, you just see more and more physical retailers digitizing their entire business, which both is a tailwind to our marketplace of joining the marketplace for the first time. I mean, if you looked at, you know, some of the um, brands that we onboarded in, um, you know, 2022, a lot of that even diversified beyond restaurants into the grocery sector with additions like Sprouts or Raley's. We announced, you know, Aldi's earlier this year. Um, then you have, you know, additions in the retail category, whether it be Sephora or Dick's Sporting Goods. Um, so a lot of these retailers are digitizing more of their business and coming online to get that incremental business from the largest local commerce marketplace. 
Um, the second um, kind of thing that's happening is the fact that because they're trying to digitize their entire operations, these retailers, they are also partnering with our platform products as well, products like DoorDash Drive, DoorDash Storefront, um, where they're, you know, they're trying to run more of their business um, in, a, in a fashion that both, I think, takes advantage of the convenience economy, but also, I think, um, just creates a better business model from, for themselves, right, where they can make more productive use of their square footage by adding more and more sales um, into a fixed space. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing, you know, the, quite a lot of additions um, uh, nonstop, you know, candidly, both on the restaurant side as well as on the non-restaurant front. And Mike, just one technical point is that, you know, one out of five restaurants goes out of business each year, right? So there's this is a moving target. There's constantly new restaurants that are appearing that we need to make sure we're, we're staying ahead of. And so, you know, the sales team is always busy and they're always putting up bigger and bigger targets in order to make sure that the selection that's available on our on our platform is uh, is fresh. Got it. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Nikhil Devnani with Bernstein. Your line is now open. Hey there. Uh, thanks for taking my question. I, I had a couple, please. Um, so in the S1, you provided some really helpful disclosure around uh, contribution margins expanding for, for mature cohorts. Um, since then, there's you know been some changes, labor, regulatory, um, but also kind of you scaled up more. You have more subscribers today. Just wondering if that 8% threshold that those cohorts got to, is that still the right way to think about um, kind of mature cohort profitability for the business today? Um, and then I had a separate question on new verticals. Uh, are, are they acting as a, a new customer acquisition acquisition channel, or, or is it more a function of um, engaging the existing customer base? Thanks. Maybe I'll take the first one. Um, the the cohort level margins uh, they're healthy and they're progressing well. We showed you last quarter the total contribution profit for the U.S. restaurant business, which is essentially the aggregated performance of all of the cohorts. And so, if you take a step back, the contribution profit of our core business has consistently improved over the the, the past few years, despite post post COVID reopening, despite Prop 22, which is you know a regulatory shock to the system, inflation, and, and other things. And this is really the output of this focus on improving the efficiency of our logistics network, improving our defect rates, and so on. And so we could, you know, the purpose of that disclosure was to try to, to provide a simplified view into the progression that we've seen to the cohort margins, but on an aggregated basis, and to give you a sense of the incremental margins we're seeing in the U.S. restaurant business that are, you know, in line with what we've said historically. Um, and can you remind me of the second question, please? Yeah, sure. Just on the on the new verticals, are they acting as a you know channel for new customer acquisition altogether, or is it um, more about engaging yeah, yeah. the customers you already have? I got it. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's two things. So it's strategically important for for two purposes. First, we see a growing number of new customers, starting with non-restaurant categories. So yes it is a source of customer acquisition because there might be customers out there that, that didn't find the restaurant they were looking for and now they find DoorDash interesting because their favorite grocery store, their favorite convenience store is on the platform. So yes, you know, a growing number of new customers start their their, their, their journey with DoorDash with the new, uh, with the non-restaurant categories. Second, at least, and this is based on early signals, um, the work we've done at least so far preliminary seems to suggest that customers who order from 
you know, uh, both restaurants and non-restaurant categories have an, have an increase in their order rate, uh, which is the product of retention and order frequency compared to those that are single categories. So, you know, both of these things are, are important reasons to, for us to continue building um, uh, multi-category in order to be all things local commerce um, uh, for our cities. And the last point I'll make is, you know, we're seeing increasing you know, adoption of our new verticals amongst our MAU base. So we would said in, in Q4 last year, 14% of our MAUs had purchased uh, uh, from non-restaurant categories. That number in Q4 this year was 17%. So we're seeing steady growth, which is increased adoption uh, in a larger base year-on-year of MAUs. Thanks, Prabir. That's helpful. Your next question comes from the line of Bernie McTurnan with Needham. Your line is now open. Great, thank you for taking the questions. Um, I guess maybe it's a clarification. I just wanted to make sure I got you right, Premier, that you said 15 million Dash Pass subscribers at the end of the quarter, so that'd be um, similar or against the 10 million last year. And if you could just discuss the payback period on those subs and if the cost to acquire them um, has been consistent over the last year or two. Yeah, so uh, first question, yep, 15 million is right. So 10 million at the end of 21 increased to over 15 million at the end of 22. Payback period we, we've not disclosed. We continue to run efficiently. Those payback periods have actually not, are not materially different this year than they were uh, earlier on in the year. So if you're, if, if what you're asking me is, has a has competitor cross-selling uh, bundles made it harder for us to um, acquire DashPass subscribers? We haven't seen any noticeable impact so far. I think I said earlier the pace of DashPass subscriber growth has been relatively consistent each quarter. And on top of that, you know, we track the number of new customers that, that join the industry. Our share of new customers joining the industry has been consistent this past year. In fact, has actually increased towards the back half of this year. And so both of these data points give me comfort that we haven't seen a, a noticeable impact from any, uh, any cross-selling. Great. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Doug Enmuth with J.P. Morgan. Your line is now open. Thanks so much for taking the questions. Um, I just had a couple about the 23 outlook. Just hoping you could talk a little bit more about APIs, just kind of how you see them evolving across uh, AOV and frequency, and I guess in particular in baskets, I've like referred from some others just about talking times. And then secondly, uh, can you talk about gross margins a little bit, some of the Tailwind and perhaps headwind for next year, and do you need that to expand to drive higher EBITDA margin? Thank you. Hey, uh, this is Ravi. Let me take the question. On the first piece, on the 23 guidance itself, in terms of KPIs, our goal is to continue to drive both monthly active users as well as order frequency. We continue to see strong uh, signals in our retention, which has stabilized over the last several months. Newer cohorts continue to come in at order frequency higher than what we've seen earlier in the year. Now to your uh, second point. Uh, can you repeat your second question? Does it go uh, some of the gross margin puts in states, and you need that to expand to drive even that margin. Sure. Yeah, on the gross margin piece itself, if you actually break apart the gross margin, core DoorDash gross margin excluding Volt, actually increased on a year-on-year basis. That was driven by improvements in dasher cost as a percentage of GOV, as well as credits and refunds. 
some part of that was offset by the higher insurance costs that we've seen in the business. On a consolidated basis, gross margin declined because of mixed shift towards world. Looking ahead in 23, we do expect gross margin to be higher than Q4 levels. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Michael Morton with SVB. Your line is now open. Hello. Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, a question on new vertical businesses. Uh, if you look at something like package pickup, it suggests that the time-sensitive nature you face in core restaurants could be lower, right, and maybe higher levels of batching. So I was wondering if you could speak to any of the early demand trends and then unit economics you're seeing on some of these new verticals like package pickups compared to prior new verticals. And then just lastly, if maybe any update on non-restaurant GOV growth would be would be great if you could. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Maybe I can take the uh, it's Tony. I'll, I can take the first part of the question, and you know, someone can answer. I think the growth rate question, which which we um, disclosed before. So on 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 the um, on on the package piece, I mean, we're, we're obviously very excited about what we can build. I mean, think about it. We have three million dashers that come to the platform every ninety days. And we have, you know, the most sophisticated uh, logistics systems for last mile. And, you know, when I think about the opportunity, it's quite immense just because, you know, most last mile systems were built during a time when, frankly, there wasn't e-commerce, right? Which means that um, a lot of the setup isn't really well suited for doing true last mile deliveries. And, and, and that's, that's actually why we think there's quite a lot that we can do that if we can deliver ice cream in 10 minutes or you know, pizza in a similar period of time, we can certainly deliver uh, something that is less perishable with greater time. And to your point, there's lots of opportunities to make the logistics really efficient. So we're quite excited about what this can be. I do think that over time, in addition to becoming the largest local commerce marketplace, we'll also be the last mile infrastructure in most cities globally. It's just gonna take quite a lot of time to get there. And, you know, the package piece is, is seeing quite a lot of demand, but it's pretty early, I would say, in, in, in terms of, you know, how it works. And so I, I think it really is a good um, uh, example of how we, you know, try to solve customer problems at DoorDash. You know, a lot of why we got into that business was really seeing some of the requests from customers come in to support and then, you know, acting upon it and running an experiment and then, you know, seeing if we can actually build a product that customers love, and then we'll actually consider the scaling, you know, afterwards. And so it's still in the period of finding and, and achieving product market fit. That's really where that, you know, experiment is right now. But we have many of these experiments across, you know, the board at DoorDash, and that's one of the reasons why it's so fun to work here. Yeah, and on your question on, on, on new categories growth, I, I think I mentioned this earlier um, in the call, but I'll reiterate it. You know, our, our U.S. convenience and grocery business grew, you know, roughly 60% year on year in Q4. Our U.S. grocery business grew um, roughly 100% year on year in Q4. And then our vote business grew 50% on a constant currency basis. Again, these are, these are, these are attractive growth rates that we're, we're happy to post. Thank you so much. Your next question comes from the line of Brian Fitzgerald with Wells Fargo. Your line is now open. Thanks. Um, maybe a related question, Tony. You have um, large and growing, you know, uh, lakes and data sets. Um, 
which is maybe the most important driver of AI and machine learning models, and it's certainly front and center in the press nowadays. I want to know if you could talk a little bit about how you think these uh, processes impact your business and how you leverage them, uh, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, it's a great question. Like, look, there's, um, I'm actually really glad that AI is having its kind of mainstream moments, you know, these days. And, and, and I think there is, you know, quite a lot of potential here. And I, and I do think a lot of it is actually, um, you know, uh, couched in the way that you described it, which is that the importance of the data and, and taking that data into translating it into pragmatic product, you know, products that actually solve customer problems, right? Like that's kind of the key. And so, for us, we've actually been, um, you know, working with different AI um, in each of our products probably for the last three or four years now. Um, you know, some of it you see in the ranking and the recommendations product we use with consumers. A lot of it you see, you know, behind the scenes with logistics. Um, you see that now also in our support products. I mean, it's really getting used across the board, in other words. You know, I think it's it's very hard when – I think you're at the precipice of a technology you know, to figure out the exact application in which it's going to really realize the technology's full potential. But we certainly see all of these, um, you know, benefits um, give small improvements that then compound over time. And when you're at the scale that we've achieved in our business lines, it really adds up. And so I really think that this is going to be a big push for us on a go-forward basis, or a continued big push, I should say, on a go-forward basis, um, and it's something I'm super excited about. Your next question comes from the line of Yusuf Squally with Truist Securities. Your line is now open. Great. Thank you very much. And Prabir and Ravi, congrats. So um, I guess a, a two-part question. One, the, the macro around the consumer seems to be a bit wobbly right now between a strong employment and dwindling, dwindling balance sheet. I was wondering if maybe you can comment on what you've seen so far in January and February. I know you, you've already got it and the guide looks really good, but if I look at the guide for the year, it seems like you're not really assuming much of an improvement Q1 to Q4 at least from a GOV standpoint. So maybe can you just address what you're seeing right now and kind of what's your bacon in in terms of your guide for the rest of the year in terms of, uh, you know, sequential growth? Cool. Uh, let me take this one. If you look at our results, uh, we've consistently driven double-digit uh, growth rate in GOV over the last seven quarters. In fact, our revenue is actually outpacing our GOV growth rate. When you look at the core consumer input metrics, we're just coming off of a record quarter in terms of monthly active users as well as DashPass subscribers. I think what we're seeing in the business is order frequency of the newer cohorts continues to be higher than the older cohorts. Retention of our newer cohorts has been pretty stable for the last several months. To your question on Q1 itself, it's off to a great start. Uh, we're seeing continued share gains since the beginning of the year, and that's what's baked into our guidance for the rest of the year as well. Guy. And, and just to uh, just to add on the folio comment, Yusuf, it's Prabir. I mean, uh, look, as Ravi said, we've got we're seeing strong consumer metrics currently, right, both in Q4 and, and strength into Q1. And so you've got high visibility into the first half of the year, which is why you're seeing a strong Q1 guide. You know, for the full year, particularly as you as you talk about the second half, you know, there, there's uncertainty around macro issues, and we're trying to bake in that uncertainty in our full year outlook because you know it's not about a lack of confidence in the fundamentals; it's about uncertainty on the uh, on the macro conditions. Yeah, super helpful. Thanks for being here. 
Your next question comes from the line of Andrew Boone with JMP Securities. Your line is now open. Thanks so much for taking my questions. Um, two, please. Delivery Hero has made significant investments in its One Piece convenience product. Can you help us size the investments of your One Piece convenience um, product? And then secondly, on corporate, the significant opportunities can just update uh, your progress in terms of making more corporate relationships and, and corporate ordering. Thanks so much. Can you repeat the second question? Sorry, it was muffled. I'm thinking about the, the old seamless opportunity with corporates, um, just having a more of a corporate relationship and, and office ordering as more people are back in office. Yeah, um, I can take both of those questions. It's Tony. So I think the first question was around um, Dash Marts. Um, so we, we haven't broken out, um, you know, the investment piece behind Dash, uh, the, the investment um, budget for Dash Marts. But, but here's, you know, kind of how I, I've thought about, you know, Dash Marts, which is, you know, first, I think it's important to acknowledge that it's not a standalone product, right? It's a feature built on top of the largest local commerce marketplace that has the most number of consumers who are the most engaged and also the most number of dashers, none of whom we have to reacquire. Um, the, the second comment, which makes it just much more capital efficient from an investment perspective um, re relative to a standalone effort. The second comment I'd make here is really the purpose behind the investment. So if you think about, you know, where non-restaurant delivery is to today, um, you know, things like grocery delivery take as an example, it really hasn't achieved the full potential of what we believe the category could become. I mean, at the end of the day, the customer's looking to get everything they ordered inside their cart. They're looking for it at prices that are relatively the same as what they would expect to pay in store. And obviously, they expect the delivery with greater convenience than if they were to do it on their own. Um, but today, you know, that's not what the current day products offer. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to make sure that we can work together with retailers to bridge both the short-term challenges of working with, you know, third-party retail infrastructure that isn't optimized, nor was it designed for delivery, and, you know, create and invent a new model um, in which we can co-create with retailers such that we can move the industry forward and actually solve these customer problems to achieve the full potential of grocery delivery or, you know, non-restaurant delivery. And so that's really the purpose. And we found quite a lot of different use cases once you've, um, you know, actually mastered the basics of retail, which, you know, we're still learning how to do. And, you know, we're only about 18 months into the effort, but we really like what we see. And, and, but I think it's important to understand just from a capital efficiency perspective how different it is relative to, you know, doing it um, on a standalone basis. And I think your second question was around corporate orders. Um, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that obviously it took a bit of a hiatus during, you know, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic where, you know, obviously, you know, offices were shut down and, and people were less confident about how work would be done and, and, and so on and so forth. And that's actually when, a lot of, um, you know, our, our team was able to uh, very quickly pivot into building products that would actually solve for workers at home as, you know, all of us kind of got more accustomed to the idea of working remotely or not in the office, especially now as people are getting back into the office. And I think things have stabilized effectively in this post-COVID world. Um, I definitely think that that's a big opportunity moving forward. Thank you.
Your next question comes from the line of Stephen Fox with Fox Advisors. Your line is now open. A couple questions. First, you mentioned in the letter um, how you're managing for better affordability with your uh, customers. Can you talk a little bit more about that and whether um, that brings you under like an, an inflation curve we would think of broadly or or how, how do we think about that going forward? And similar question on, there was a paragraph talking about how you've gotten more efficient. Um, obviously, you're going to get more efficient um, this year too on some of the things you mentioned, but like how does that curve look this year versus last year? in your minds as it contributes to EBITDA. Thanks. Sure. Maybe I'll take the first part of the question, which I believe was around affordability, and then I'll, I'll let Robbie take the second part on the efficiency side. So on the affordability side, um, yes, I mean, we, we've, um, you know, as, as disclosed in, in the letter, you know, we've taken down transaction costs for consumers by about 8% in the past year. And we're always trying to drive this down, right? And we're always trying to drive this down as we add selection, improve delivery times, improve the accuracy and the quality of those deliveries. So obviously we're trying to do more than one thing at the same instance. But when it comes to affordability, you know, certainly DashPass has been a big driver, a lot of the affordability gains you know, for our customers, um, especially as we continue to see um, consistent ads into the DashPass, you know, program. But at the same time, you know, we're working on quite a lot of other initiatives as well, you know, to make sure that we can keep making the service more and more affordable. Certainly, we're trying to beat, you know, inflation, but hopefully we can do much better than that, um, especially as we find more creative ways in delivering more and more value back to consumers. Let me take the second one on uh, efficiency. For us, when we think about efficiency, it always starts with improving product quality. When we improve product quality, the retention of the platform goes up, whether it's consumers or dashers. When the retention goes up, we don't have to spend as much on retaining existing consumers and dashers, which drives leverage on our sales and marketing. The second advantage we have when we improve product quality is the fulfillment cost per order goes down, whether it's support costs, dasher costs, or credits and refunds. Also, in addition to that, as the product quality goes up, awareness increases, which makes us the ability to acquire consumers and dashers at attractive prices even more attractive. The combination of these three factors is what's driving the efficiency you're seeing in the business. In our belief, there's a lot more room for us to continue to improve product quality, which will further drive efficiency gains. And our goal is to reinvest that efficiency back into driving scale in the business. And some of the efficiency gains that you see are included in our EBITDA guidance going forward. Great. That's all very, very helpful. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Ron Josie with City. Your line is now open. Great. Thanks for taking the question, Prabir. Congrats on the promotion of President Robbie in your new role. I wanted to um, maybe follow up, Prabir. I think I heard you say 3P Grocery was up 100% in 4Q. I think that's the same growth rate as in 3Q. So talk to us about how the use case is evolving here. Is, is Grocery and DoorDash primarily still top off? Are you getting Sunday orders? Any insights there would be helpful. And then we're now a few months post the restructuring at the end of November, and so we'd love to hear insights on the savings, but perhaps more importantly, just progress in, in operationally around efficiency and while still building and launching new products, how that's going internally. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, maybe yeah, I maybe. can take – I can start on, on both of those questions, and then I'll let others, you know, add to them. I, I think – so, again, on, on the first part with respect to – you know, grocery, yes, it continues to perform and, and continues to take share. And you're right. I mean, the entry uh, uh, into third-party grocery really for DoorDash has been in solving this top-up use case, right, where you can think of it almost as 
being the express aisle in, in, in many ways. Um, and that was a way to familiarize ourselves with consumers, you know, as we kind of um, uh, moved outside of the restaurant category. And and, and, and I think it, it was certainly something that worked. I mean, you see it in the, the, the gains in, in share, but you also see it in, you know, the improving profitability of that business. Um, at the same instance, you know, we've certainly been working a lot on, creating more and more an item-based shopping experience at DoorDash. Now, that takes lots of work on the back end around catalog and many things. Um, and I think that's also now showing promise where we can solve both the use case of the top-up, where I think we're quite advantaged, advantaged with our logistics network, as well as just how consumers perceive us, but also the stock-up use case, where people are buying, you know, bigger and bigger carts um, you know, for their, um, you, you know, more staple items. And so we're now, you know, seeing both of these types of use cases, um, even though we entered the category with more of a top-up use case. Um, on the second question, you know, I'll, I'll let, you know, maybe others chime in on, on, on some of the numbers, but from an efficiency perspective, you know, certainly that was a really painful decision, right? I think I think it's helpful to have some context here of, 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 of how we got there, where, um, you know, over the last, three years, um, the business revenues have grown about 7x, and, you know, we were really trying to catch up to that growth, so the headcount grew about 4x, um, and, and so we are playing catch-up, but then we kind of didn't get it exactly right and kind of got a bit ahead of our skis on, on the hiring, and so that um, that made certain things uh, a bit cluttered, and, and certainly we needed to make sure that we right-sized the organization so that we're set up great for the future, which we feel very confident about. From an execution perspective, we actually feel like it's made us more focused, you know, on the most important things. And and as a result, by, you know, decluttering some of the, you know, management layers as well as maybe coordination meetings that were um, once um, quite a large cost to the system, you know, we're getting a lot better. Um, it doesn't mean we're perfect. We have many things we have to figure out. We're still, you know, building many things as we um, continue to innovate beyond restaurants as we expand um, internationally and as we expand beyond our marketplace and build these platform products. We're always going to keep investing and invent new products, um, but we have to, you know, do it with a more focused base. And Ron, before Ravi, uh, Ravi talk about the, the risk here, I just wanted to confirm. So, yeah, in Q3 of last, of last year, Q322, we said the grocery business had grown um, over 100%. In Q4, it grew roughly 100%, just shy of 100%. So those numbers are right. Thank yeah, you, Jelly. Thank you for your... Just on the leverage itself, yeah, we do expect to drive leverage on our operating expenses in 2023, and that's been included in our EBITDA guidance that we've given. Thanks, Ravi. Your next question comes from the line of Brad Erickson with RBC. Your line is now open. Yeah, thanks. Just two follow-ups, I guess. One, on the health of the consumer. You touched on it earlier, being, I guess, broadly stable. Just curious if you look at Europe. I think, you know, some others have commented that may actually be getting better, maybe even accelerating at the moment. Just curious if you're seeing that, too, and, and what you've assumed as a trajectory there for the full-year guide for Europe. And then just one clarification on the grocery and convenience. Is there any uh, the 60% growth you've called out, is there any meaningful delta there between the organic growth rate uh, and the 60% or are they basically about the same? Thanks. So uh, on the first question, um, you know, we haven't broken out the board, but we are projecting strong growth for next year. The, the one caveat I will uh, I will make 
Whereas when you look at Q1, Q1 has the Omicron comp issue, which I suspect you're hearing from other companies as well. Q1 of last year had this, this spike because of Omicron. And so you'll see that in the growth rates of uh, for Q1 this year. But, you know, that doesn't change our, our optimism and confidence in the, in, the, in the full year outlook for Volt. On your second question, um, I, I didn't understand, uh, understand what you meant by organic growth. For us, you know, the entirety of our convenience and grocery business, it, it, that growth is all organic. So I'm, I'm not sure uh, if that's what you were asking or perhaps I misunderstood the question. Yeah, no. Yeah, just to add to that. I think the numbers that we were giving out were just U.S., so that was organic. Got it. Thank you. This concludes our Q&A for today and for today's conference call. Thank you so much for attending. You may now disconnect.